Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome to Heaven's Gate. I started this series speaking about how Heaven's Gate was made up of people like you and me. Curious people, people who wanted to believe they'd found something special. And I revealed my own experience in a group that taught that the end was nigh. Now, I stayed in the Worldwide Church of God through my late teens, partly because my community was there with me. And in my own experience, I found that you'll accept a lot of nonsense to feel a part of something, to have that connection. And I think sometimes, what if I'd never been in that church? What if my parents had said, you know what? This is crazy. Come on, kids. We're out of here. Would I see the world completely differently? Who would I be even now? Well, today's show is full of ifs, and but fours. Specifically, what if Marshall Applewhite had just remained a singer? What if a young member of Heaven's Gate had not been on the autism spectrum? And but for a daughter's love, where would a father have gone after the biggest mistake of his life? This is Heaven's Gate, Episode 8, The Unknowns. I'll tell you who I am. T and Doe, whatever they want to call us. Whether or not you believe is up to you. You, you. We all have to deal with demons. We're trying to teach you how to prepare yourself. You are members of the next level. The next level. We ask you for all your stories of your own, any connection you might have had with Heaven's Gate or anything else you want to share that the series has brought up. And man, you responded. We've got email, voicemail, ton of stuff on Facebook. I don't think we were surprised by the amount of the response or the intensity, but the particulars are so gripping. And they're full of open questions like the one I was just talking about. Some of you told us about how you were born into a cult yourselves. Here's Michelle from Los Angeles. I'm a cult leader's granddaughter. I was raised to believe we were God's chosen people and I behaved accordingly. People say don't look back the past, but like Lot's wife, I have to look back. I mean, here on the outside, I feel like I still move like an immigrant, that I built my house upon sand in a land that will never be my own. And in a swift moment, it can all be taken from me, a vengeful act of God. And here's Sadie from Iowa. I was also born into a cult. It's given me a lot of psychological issues that I'm currently in therapy for. I have a really hard time connecting to other people because the sense of otherness was so great that I couldn't even see myself as another human alongside other humans, let alone a part of their society or anything. Here's Bianca from Orlando. Her group kept her on her toes. I was in this youth group that my church had called the Adventurers. We did wilderness training. They taught us how to live in the woods because in the Bible, they said in the end of days, we would have to run to the mountains and that we would have to stay away from all the other people on the earth because they would try to persecute us and kill us and because we had the truth and no one else did. Thank you, Bianca. 
We also heard from some of you who still believe in your faith, but are questioning what some of that means. Here's Kira from Australia. I guess what's been on my mind a lot as I've been listening to Heaven's Gate is uh, really how not so different I am between a lot of the followers of T and Doe. Um, I believe that there is a prophet on the earth who um, speaks directly to God and um, converses directly with him. Um, And as I was listening to the last episode, they were saying how uh, they completely just trusted um, Doe to lead them where they needed to go. And um, when he was asking everyone there, uh, you know, would they be comfortable dying for this purpose? I was thinking, you know, if the prophet came to me personally and asked me to do something, um, asked me to do something awful, would I do it? And I, you know, I, it was a very uh, shocking and scary thought when I realized that, um, yeah, I think I would because I, I truly believe that this, this prophet speaks for God. Thank you so much, everyone, for sharing. Please keep it coming. You can hit us up on Facebook or at feedback at heavensgate.show or leave a voicemail at 619-354-0180. We have three stories today, each one in some way about a path not taken. And the first story comes from a man who knew Marshall Applewhite before anyone else you've heard in this series. Well, uh, you know, it's so easy to parody Doe. It's so easy to dismiss Heaven's Gate as a bunch of crazy people who attach themselves to a deranged leader. But every deranged leader was something else before he became the deranged leader. And every person who becomes a member of a cult, especially a self-destructive cult, They were real people. Uh, They were something else before they were members of Heaven's Gate. This is Neely Bruce. Today, he's a respected professor of music and American studies at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. But back in the 1960s, Neely was an eager undergrad at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And one of Neely's choir directors was the artist formerly known as Marshall Herf Applewhite. He had powerful musical personality. Marshall was a talented singer before he ever thought of leading a group of religious flowers. He led choral students. We met the first day of class, and I, I went into the uh, rehearsal. I both sang in choruses he conducted and was an accompanist for one of his groups. Like everybody else, I liked him a lot. He was very charismatic. He was very nice. He was very friendly. He was very good-looking. He was very energetic. He was quite certain of himself, and he uh, he conducted with great uh, emphasis and strength, and he demonstrated very effectively uh, with his singing voice, which was outstanding. His voice was very beautiful and very clear, uh, and he had excellent acting skills. He was a born singing actor. He did probably the best performance I've ever heard of the old American songs by Aaron Copeland. I just wish... I could say that we had a recording of her singing Aaron Copeland or any music, but none seems to exist. Still, I want to play some of Copeland's old American songs, like this one called The Dodger, so you can get a sense of what Neely's talking about. The lyrics of The Dodger include various forms of con men, including a preacher who's out for your cash money. He did these things in a faculty recital and just blew everybody away because he had such a wonderful feeling for the text and he got all the humor out of the songs and the sweetness out of the songs and, uh, as I say, impeccable with his diction. You could understand every word that he sang. The lover, he's a 
daughter, yes, a well-known daughter, yes, the lover, he's a daughter, yes, and I'm a daughter too. We contacted the Houston Opera, where Herf Applewhite performed in something like 15 productions in the mid-60s. We wanted to see what they might have featuring him in their archives, and all that turned up was one lonely playbill from a production of Hansel and Gretel. There he is, one line in the playbill list of cast. Father, Herf Applewhite, baritone. But Neely Bruce remembers the Houston Opera was supposed to be Herf's big break after teaching. Everybody thought this is a great idea because, you know, his, his real talent is as a singer. His real talent would be on the operatic stage. The real Herf Applewhite would be a singing actor. So we all thought that was great, that he was going to go and, and become an opera star, which is not exactly what he went on to be, of course. But Applewhite's jump to the opera was not as happy as that makes it sound. Herf had been fired from his teaching job in Alabama after he'd had an affair with a choir pianist. The affair was a problem for two reasons. One, Herf was married. Two, the pianist was a man. The university wanted nothing to do with the scandal. Unfortunately, Herf didn't last long at the Houston Opera either. His last role at Houston Opera was to have been the uh, Olin Blitch in Susanna by Carlisle Floyd. And Olin Blitch would have been a great role for him, but apparently he had some sort of a, a breakdown on stage in production week and did not actually appear in the role. And that was kind of the beginning of of the strange journey that took him uh, to his final rendezvous with fate as the leader of Heaven's Gate. We are returning to life. And we do, in all honesty, hate this world. I remember seeing one picture of him seated, and it was very clear it was the same person, but it was not. It didn't make the same effect at all, uh, because he did not look particularly healthy uh, in these pictures. I've never heard of such a, a remarkably coordinated, calculated, uh, well-planned, well-thought-out uh, event for such a sinister purpose. Neely is not saying that we should accept what Herf became. More like if Herf had succeeded, perhaps Doe might never have existed. It's interesting to speculate what the world lost when uh, Herf Applewhite became Doe. Uh, obviously, a very fine voice was lost. A, a wonderful singing actor never realized his full potential. But he was also a a wonderful, kind human being who had a great capacity uh, for empathy. Uh, He was a strong leader as a conductor. He was a wonderful singer, as I mentioned several times. Um, You know, the maturity of such a person, um, is we we just don't have it. We, We rather have, you know, someone who took a truly bizarre uh, turn in life and became and remade himself as someone totally different on so many levels. Um, I guess the actor part uh, he did keep. He, he became a supreme uh, actor, able to turn his whole life into the role that he had made for himself. Neely Bruce is a professor of music at Wesleyan University. And coming up, a lot of you have wondered about the role mental health and mental competency played in Heaven's Gate. Was the cult preying on the most vulnerable among us? In one case, perhaps. I had wondered if Jimmy was our, was mentally ill for a while. He had attempted suicide once before, and so I wondered if he had lost his mind briefly. That's in a minute.
Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. In previous episodes of this show, you've heard Heaven's Gate members explain the exhilaration they felt when they found Tian Do, that joy when they realized that, yes, this is the thing I've been waiting for. I'm all in. Some of those people still believe. And we've heard from other ex-members who regretted that choice to join. These are people who, after they left, felt like they'd given up too much of themselves, too much of their mind, their agency. Even though someone escapes the suicide pact, the path right up to it can shape the rest of your life. These members, they couldn't disagree more about what Heaven's Gate stands for, but they agree at least that they made a choice to join, that they were mentally competent, rational adults who made a risky choice. But that may not be true for every member who joined. Jim Simpson came into Heaven's Gate in 1994, and unlike most of the other recruits, Jim was on the autism spectrum. Before Heaven's Gate, Jim rarely had any friends. He struggled to connect with other people, and even to go anywhere other than work or home. Jim's sister, Deb Simpson, believes her brother was more vulnerable, intellectually and emotionally, than some other members. Deb's been haunted by her brother's death. She even wrote a book called Closing the Gate, and in it she writes about the difficult childhood they experienced together as a way of demonstrating how her brother interacted with the world. In the Heaven's Gate universe, agency and free will are always in question. So how does that change when the member is Jim Simpson? And what is his sister to do about it? Here's Deb Simpson. I have a lot of different pictures of us when we were younger. This is Jimmy when he was a baby. Here he is sitting in my lap at seven months. He was very cute. You can see from the pictures, very cute. He was very sweet and very loving at that age. You know, he just took my heart away when he was a little bitty thing. I was kind of like his second mother, and he seemed in many ways almost like my child. When Jimmy was little, his eyes were always large, brown, and sad. This is Jimmy at about four, and here you start to see the sadness. You start to see even in his pictures, you see the sadness in his eyes. I don't think that Jimmy ever really felt grounded. His mother, and we have the same mother and different fathers. His mother and father both had mental issues. Uh, those were diagnosed, it's not something I'm saying. and. He did not grow up with a lot of solid foundation. We moved a lot. Jimmy lived in Atlanta. He lived in Daytona. He lived in Jacksonville. He lived in Green Cove Springs, Florida, which was the last place we lived. Washington, Seattle, Washington is where he was born. Portland, Oregon. Yahats, Oregon. And Oklahoma City that I can think of. Oh, and Norfolk, Virginia later on in life. But most of that was in the first three years of his life. We were moving constantly. We were as nomadic as the cult. And it was not uncommon for me to come home from school and find the car packed. That was just normal life. I look at these pictures and I realize how, how much we laughed and how much fun I had with him at that age. And also at the same time, I, I was afraid for him. I couldn't have put it in words then, but I knew that he was not getting something he needed. He would not talk. He could, but he was about three, 
and two and a half, three, and he would not. He would point at things and grunt. And my mother would guess until she got what he wanted and then give it to him. And I think that he just always felt like a fish floundering out there on his own. So I think he was looking for a place to belong. Deb says her brother liked exploring religions. He read books about Wicca and Buddhism. As he got older, Jimmy got into UFOs. He read one book about how aliens, not humans, wrote the Bible. He believed, and this was before Heaven's Gate, he believed that aliens, they were probably related to God in some way. He believed that that they started the Earth. Jimmy bumped into the group in the most casual of ways. He was at work in a spring manufacturing plant in Atlanta. Jimmy walked into the break room and saw a newspaper lying open on a table. And there was a full-page ad recruiting people to Heaven's Gate. When he saw the ad in USA Today, what they were saying just hit home with him. It spoke to him. And then he reached out to them, and everything that he heard from them going forward only reinforced that they believed what he believed. My mother called and said my brother had left. And I said, what do you mean he left? Well, his stuff is not here. Okay, mother, what stuff is not there? Okay, his clothes and stuff. Okay, well, that's really unusual. He never left the house. He was a hermit. He went to work and came home, and he worked a block away. And so I said, come on now, this is Jimmy. He wouldn't have gone anywhere. Well, I reckon he's gone. I said, okay, so, mother, is it possible he got involved with a cult? She said, oh, I don't think so. This is Jimmy. I don't know how he would meet them. A couple of days went by as I was trying to hunt him down without much luck. And I said, mother, did he take any money with him? Yes, he cleaned out his account. And I said, how much was in there? And she said, between five and 6000 And I said, Mother, we're dealing with a cult. Jimmy had followed in true Heaven's Gate form. He'd left a note behind. I do have the letter. This is the letter from Jimmy to my mother in January 1994. Mother, I'm sorry, but I have to leave. Please don't take this personally. It has nothing to do with you. It's something I must do. I'm going to Dallas to join a monastery. I'm only going to Dallas for the orientation or training period. From there, they may send me somewhere else, so it will be difficult for you to find me. Please don't bother. The training requires a separation from the world, sort of a lifting out. I'll contact you as soon as possible when the time is right. The reasons for doing this are hard to say, but not long ago, a kind of spiritual awakening took place, and since then, I felt this intense desire to go and be with others like myself. I waited too long already. The journey requires the breaking of all ties to the world, whether it be marriage, family, job, or whatever it is that binds you. If this hurts you in any way, I'm sorry. That is not my intention. I hate that I must do it this way. But you would only try to talk me out of it. Don't worry about me. I'll be fine. I'm not alone. Where he guides, he provides, and here begins a new life. That was all we had when he left. I was just blown away. My brother was such a hermit. He never, even as a child, he was very quiet. If he had one friend that was fortunate, he really did not connect with other people. So he would go to work, which was a block from where he lived, and he would come home. And he rarely went anywhere else unless my son and I were visiting, and then he would occasionally go with us someplace. Otherwise, he really didn't go anywhere. And so I just, I couldn't understand how he got in contact, how they got in contact with him or he got in contact with them. For me, I had wondered if Jimmy was our, was mentally ill for a while. He had attempted suicide once before. He had gone through depressions. And so I wondered if he had lost his mind briefly. Jimmy had also left behind a business card that said Total Overcomers Anonymous. It was Deb's only clue. She called the Red Cross and the Salvation Army, but they had never heard of the group. She was stuck. But then three months later, Deb received a letter from Tucson, Arizona. It was Jimmy. And he wasn't with the group at the moment. But he wasn't done with it either. 
He didn't tell me why he had left other than he just couldn't do, just couldn't grab a hold of, couldn't, wasn't strong enough to do some of the things that he needed to do to be part of the group. Some of the members were having visions of uh, people from the next level walking around and he didn't, Jimmy didn't, and that was difficult for him. And he felt like he was a failure. And then he called me and said, I am at the airport in Chicago and I need you to come get me, I'm coming to visit you. And I had no idea he was coming. He came back different. He was much more outspoken than he had been. He was much more confident than he had been before. He knew what he believed and he would tell you what he believed. And if you didn't believe it, he wouldn't necessarily argue with you, but if you wanted to have a debate about it, he would. He would debate it with you. And that was not my brother. That was not the brother I knew. He stayed with me about six weeks. So we would talk usually in the evenings after work and on the weekends. I would take him around to see different things and he would show me different books that if we were in a bookstore, he would show me different books that the cult had read, that he had read when he was there. And he would laugh, which was good. I was glad to see him laugh again. I was very conflicted all the way around about the cult. I was afraid he was gonna leave again. But he had also told me that, that the cult would let him leave if he wanted to, that he wasn't being held against his will. And he genuinely seemed to love them. Jimmy lives with his sister for about two months. Deb says it's time that she will always cherish. But that moment was brief. The new Jimmy, the more confident, the extroverted Jimmy, the guy the group had helped discover, that Jimmy fell away again. And then he stopped going to work. He just refused to get up and go to work, which was like the old Jimmy. And I said to him about the third day of him doing that, I said, this is not going to work. If you're going to be here, you're going to have to work somewhere. And that seemed to anger him. And he thought about it for a few days. And I came in from work one day and he has, he said, I'm, I'm done, I'm leaving. And I said, you could go back. And he said, yes. And I said, so what, would you want to go back? I think maybe I do. I think maybe I do. I really expected I would see him again. I didn't expect to not see him again. I thought that we had built a bridge and that things were, were better and that he felt welcomed into my life. Jimmy tried restarting his life outside of the group. He took a job at the carnival. It didn't work out. His mother died. He moved around. Deb tried to keep tabs on him, but the relationship was strained. Jimmy had stolen some money from her. He wound up back at the same job at the Spring Manufacturing Plant in Atlanta. And then, in March 1997, Deb ran into the same confusing news the rest of America did. I had come home from work. I was sitting talking to my boyfriend at that point and we were watching the news and I saw started to hear about the cult and, you're, and I was kind of half listening and then they said Doe and T and I stopped in my tracks because those names I recognized and I gave the TV my full attention and the more I heard the more certain I was it was the cult he had belonged to and I wondered how his how the loss of his family, because that's how he saw them, was going to affect him. I always remember that day. I remember with sadness that was the day that I was first concerned that he was going to follow them. So I called my aunt, and he, he was back in Atlanta, as was my aunt. And I said, have you talked to Jimmy? And she said, no, I talked to him a couple days ago. Why? And I said, well, the, did you see on the news today about the cult, the mass suicide? And I said, well, that's the cult he was part of. And she said, well, he didn't tell me anything about that. And I said, I'm telling you, the six weeks he stayed with me, and we talked about this in depth, and he wrote to me about it. This is the cult 
She said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, can you just call him because you know he's not talking to me and find out if he's okay? Okay, I'll do that. So she called me back the next day or the day after, and she said, he's fine, he's fine. He says, you know, it was hard to see, but he's okay. And, you know, I said, you don't think he's going to take try to follow him? And she said, oh, no, he's not going to do that. But Jimmy was hiding his feelings. He considered the group his real family, and their exit devastated him. Jimmy created little memorials, drew diagrams of their 39 souls being lifted into a UFO. He bought the Newsweek magazine profiling everyone in the group, and he cut their faces out and made a collage. He wrote their Heaven's Gate names underneath. Then Jimmy bought a gun, mailed a note to his aunt, telling her that he was going to join his real family. A warning to our listeners, the next few moments are graphic, as Deb describes the final details of Jimmy's life. She had gotten a letter from him and in the mail, and it had said, by the time you get this, I'll probably be dead. And she sent her son-in-law over to check on him. And he, when he knocked on the door, he heard the gunshot. And so he called the police, and they, Jimmy died before they got him to the hospital. His um, apartment, if you can call it that, was like a one room, and the bed was up on a up on stilts. Um, and so he was actually where he killed himself was up on in that loft type bed, and he had uh, a purple with celestial kind of stars and things on it that was hanging above where he killed himself. And everything else we found downstairs, down underneath, because it was just like a room with a loft. Um, And so everything else was just sitting out as if it were ready for someone to find it. His uh, farewell letter, his final account from a class member, that's what he called it, final account. I really struggled with this the first time I read it, and I had to read it multiple times. It says, Gabby, which is what they called him, what he called himself, final account from a next-level representative, entered the classroom 115.94, which is when he joined. His task is to shed his vehicle and join the older members. He had a clear signal to exit. There was already a failed attempt with vodka and pills. He had taken vodka and pills in his first attempt to try to follow them, and it had left him partially incapacitated. And so this time he used a gun. His vehicle is damaged from that attempt. Won't give up the ghost easily. I assume that he means his body wouldn't let go easily. And the next thing he says is, thank you, T and Doe. That that was hard for me to read. That was very hard for me to read. The thank you, T and Doe, I'm like, I'm not really sure what he was thanking them for. I assume it's for their leadership, for their direction, for being there, his elders, for leading him to his beliefs. Uh, For me, it was a different kind of thank you. It was more like, yeah, thank you, Deando. And then he signs it GBB or Gabodi. And he left that, and that... That, to me, at least we had something that said what he was thinking. Deb flew back to Atlanta to pick up his body and to make funeral arrangements. She felt so lonely. I said, if we have a service, is the family going to attend? And my aunt and uncle said no. And so I said, okay, well, then that releases me from the need to do that because Jimmy would prefer that he be cremated. My son and I went out into the woods because we thought he'd want to be in nature, uh, scattered the ashes and, you know, talked about him a little bit and cried a little bit. It was pretty short, um, and we were talking to Jimmy. We're going to, Junior and I are going to return you to the earth. Okay, I know that's what you wanted, and... I wish we didn't have to do this. I wish you were here. I never wanted to go through this, and I'll miss you every day of my life. You know, 
And my son just said, I miss you. I've worked really hard, and it was hard for me. I worked really hard to try to make sure I honor his beliefs in the telling of his story. And and that's hard sometimes when you don't believe that way. But I think that, um, I guess the thing I want people to know is that just like the many of the others who took their lives, they really believed in what they were doing. They believed it was the right decision. And whether I agree with that or not, I try to honor that that was what he believed. So I, I think he would really be surprised that I loved him that much. I don't think he thought people loved him that much. Deb Simpson lives in Leesburg, Florida. Coming up, a listener shares her life in and out of the Heaven's Gate shadow. That's in a minute. back. The next story comes from the responses we got on Facebook. There were many great ones, and thank you so much again. This listener asked that we just call her Carrie, mainly because she's telling a story about someone else, and she wants to protect his privacy. He was only 25 years old when he went into this group. The he in that sentence is Carrie's father. Out of respect for him and his experience, Carrie wants to keep him anonymous Carrie's story is similar to many of the people you've met already. Her dad up and left back in 1975 to join Tian Doe. Carrie was too young to really know him when he left. He and my mom were having some difficulties in their marriage. And in 1975, my dad left my mom and I for the Heaven's Gate cult. He found this group somehow in, in the newspaper, and they he took off and left her, and f- I think he went to Oregon. He just was gone, and we heard from him maybe once or twice in the beginning, but then it was just silence for years after that. My mom was really angry and resentful that he had left us, and rightfully so. She was a single mom raising me without any support. And so she didn't always say the nicest things about him as I was growing up. Carrie's dad missed everything important in her childhood. But Carrie tried not to dwell on that. She hoped that one day he'd come back and they could start fresh. Carrie was on to something. Uh, I remember in 1986, I was about 14 years old. We received a phone call from my dad's mom, and she told my mom on the phone, there's somebody here who wants to talk to you. That's when my dad got on the phone with my mom, and he said, I want to tell you where I've been for the last 10 years. And I remember sitting in the room, hearing this conversation, and all I could think about is, I want to talk to my dad. I want to talk to my dad. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's all about, what he looks like, because I don't have any memory of him other than the fact that I had this hole in my heart for growing up, because I remember, I guess, up to a point where, you know, you have that parental love, you know, in the beginning, but, you know, there was just that hole that I was missing, and I wanted to reconnect with him and and have that parental bond with him. She was very angry because she had to be a single mom for all those years, and she was so angry she hung up on him, and then I didn't know where he was until another four years later when he sent me a letter, and I was 18 at the time, and he wrote me a very long letter and told me where he had been and what he had done, that he was sorry he had missed me growing up. He wanted to start a relationship with me, 
He had just basically gave me his contact information and requested that I reach out to him. Once I got his phone number from the letter, I immediately called him. I just let him talk a lot. I, I didn't ask him a lot of questions because I was so overwhelmed with this. It's not every day that you hear that your parent has been involved in such a, a group that's so eccentric. They studied a lot about astrology. He did talk a lot about the different um, extraterrestrial types. That was a big deal with my dad. He always said he felt like growing up that he felt he wasn't quite human and that he really was enticed by the idea of extraterrestrials being out there. He was very, very well versed with astrology because he had a strong, very strong connection to Bonnie. And he told me that she taught him all about astrology and he was just very connected to her. I believe he left the group once Bonnie passed away and he didn't have that connection with her anymore. He immediately met his second wife. Within about probably a year of coming out of the group, he actually met his second wife by um, his job. His job was to work on Apple computers because he was very savvy with computers because that was his job while he was with the group. They were very much into computers, and so he had learned a lot about computers. So he had a job with a computer repair company and was called out to repair uh, his future wife's computer and they met. Within a couple of years, they married. They built a beautiful home together. And it seemed that he was quite happy with all of that. Early spring of 1994, he started to kind of go through a rough time and told myself, his new wife, all his family, that he was going to go back to the group because that's where he felt that he belonged there. He had remained in touch with them and never really disconnected completely. And something triggered him to desire to go back and leave his wife and leave his the beautiful home that they had built together and the life that they had built together. And in May of 1994, he was just one day gone. It was very disappointing when he went back the second time. I was I was really heartbroken. But I was going to not try to stop him or protest it because it wasn't going to do any good. Honestly, I was very confused by it, and I didn't know how to feel about it because it had brought back all of those years that we had spent together and getting to know each other was just this fairy tale. And then all of a sudden, the fairy tale just came crashing down and crashing down, and I just didn't know how to process it. And I was pretty sad about it, disappointed, but I kept the faith that he was going to come back at some point. So he was gone for about three months. I got one or two phone calls from him over the summer of 1994, and when he called me, he wouldn't call me by my name. He would call me daughter. Hello, daughter. I just want to let you know I'm okay. He wouldn't tell me where he was. And then September 17th, I get the collect call saying, daughter, I have made a terrible mistake and I need a place to come to. And I was elated. And I said, come home to me. I have a place for you here. And he moved into my apartment and stayed with me for six months. Carrie and her dad are close now. They text and talk on the phone several times a week. She says that she always knew he'd come back, that they would be reunited. It is remarkable enough that her dad was able to get out of the group twice, but even more remarkable 
I mean, think about the timing. If you're paying attention in episode six, The Choice, you know that 1994 is an important year in the timeline of Heaven's Gate. That's the year that exiting, suicide, was put on the table. He seemed regretful, remorseful that he had gone back the second time and he had this bag of clothes that he had brought back with him. And I remember seeing these clothes and they were the jogging suits that were nothing like he would ever wear. He normally would wear blue jeans, flannel shirts, and Birkenstocks. And his hair had been cut. My dad typically has longer hair, long enough to put in a ponytail. His hair was cut. He was clean-shaven. He normally has a beard. And he just seemed angry that he had given up himself for this. And I remember the first two days that he was living with me, he threw away all of his clothes from that he had brought back with him, and we went on a shopping spree, and he picked up his jeans and his flannel shirts and everything that he normally would wear. He wanted to become who he was. And I could tell that it was different than before he had left the first time, that he really was done with this. He went from calling me daughter to calling me by my first name after he had come back and and was living with me. When all the members of the group had been found dead, and I remember calling him and saying, this is the group that you were in, wasn't it? And he said, yes, it was. And then that evening, he was on the national news being interviewed by a national news anchor And I knew it was him, even though they had shadowed out his face. He wanted to remain anonymous, um, but that was him on the news talking about this group and how he had been a member for many years. And it was pretty surreal to see him talking about it. It really just slapped me in the face that my dad was a part of that type of thinking where they controlled what you did, what you wore how you ate, and what you did with your life to the point where you were willing to sacrifice it for this belief that there was another level out there that only you were privy to. I kept thinking, my dad could have been there. That could have been my dad. It could have been 40 people, not 39. Carrie lives in Oregon. She's lived there since her mother moved them there in search of their father. Carrie talked about how her father is committed to not looking back, to moving on from Heaven's Gate. And I think you'll hear in our last two episodes just how hard that has been for some of the ex-members. It's been hard for some to find their way, to figure out who they would be, who they would love, what life should look like going forward. But there are real stories of overcoming as well. We'll get into it in the last two episodes. Coming up on Heaven's Gate. Indeed, I've seen the Hillbop photograph, and it really is odd. There is something really big out there near Hillbop. I have no idea what it is, but it is not a camera flare. Whatever it is, it's real, and it is awfully big. Planet Earth about to be recycled. Your only chance to evacuate is to leave with us. Uh, Doe is really upset. And uh, he said, uh, he says, I've done, I've done a horrible thing. He says, take me to the police. And Liv Odie and Jan Odie and I, we said, no way. He said, we'll take care of it. We're going to be able to help this human civilization for a much greater and taller perspective than you can possibly imagine. So with that, we're going to say goodbye, and we'll maybe be talking to you again. You never know. 
we hope that you remember us as we were and not how other people are going to try and tell you that we are. And one last thing we'd like to say is 39 to beam up. Thank you. <laughs> hey, I want to thank you again for sending in your stories. Please continue to send in your feedback to feedback at heavensgate.show or give us a voicemail at 619-354-0180. Thanks. Heaven's Gate is produced by Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. Our team includes Ann Hepperman, Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, Josh Quinn, Osa Secker, Jess Hackle, Dan Tabirsky, Peter Clowney, Casey Holford, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Chris Bannon. Special thanks to Ben Zeller. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. And listen, this show deals with some difficult topics, like suicide. And it can be hard for people to talk about suicide or get help if they're in danger. But all of us want you to know that help is available. One excellent resource is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free, it's confidential, it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-800-273-8255. That number again is 1-800-273-8255. Or just remember, 1-800-273-TALK. It was not a booming, low voice, uh, nothing like this. His voice had more natural resonance, something like this, as opposed to something like this. Stitcher. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with Sirius XM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.